that today is a very special day in the history of the world. It's nothing to do with my class, so I'm recording it anyway. Today is Global Palindrome Day. Did you know that? If you write today's date, it's the same forwards and backwards. The last time this happened was 900 years ago. The next time it'll happen will be 101 years from now. That's one two. One two oh two two oh. In next year. Yes. In twenty twenty in let's see what is it here. In twenty one twenty one. In twenty twenty one twenty one, it will be twelve twelve two one two one. Oh where they're all the same. Yeah. So that's another hundred years. So if you can wait. <laughs> but if you'd like, you can actually amaze your friends and win trivia games or have a celebration like the Super Bowl or something to celebrate Global Palindrome Day. And even if you're in other countries where they have the year first, it still works. That's why it's global. That's why it's global. Otherwise, it'd just be American and who cares. But global? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? The stuff still works. Aren't you blessed? You know, this, this, this will change your life. I am impressed. Are you impressed? Anyway, um, I, just, I just, I read that and I went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And the thing that no one talks about it, because we don't usually use the zeros when we write the date. And so we don't even think about it. Uh, but, yeah, anyway. Okay. We are looking at our discussion, continued discussion on the gifts of the Spirit. Um, we're working off of this handout, which some of you may still have. If you don't, I print out more of them because some of you don't bring them with you to class like good students should. Uh, <laughs> which one is it? Yeah, it's the same the one we, we had last week. The new improved one. The, the new improved one, but it's the same as what we had last week. couple pages almost. We are, we're near the bottom of page two on this discussion. But as I've done each week, um, I've thought about this whole discussion of the Holy Spirit. And I came across an interesting quote. Because someone asked the question, why is discussion about this Holy Spirit so contentious within the church? Of all things. The, the, the Spirit of God that, that, that came down at Pentecost, the Spirit of God that is part of the Trinity and it's been from the beginning, before the beginning, it's always been, and yet we argue about it. And he writes this. <clears throat> he says, in a world where charismatic preachers have TV shows and touring bands, the Holy Spirit is no longer forgotten but there is a bit of confusion. In fact, even uh, Francis Chan wrote a book 10, 11 years ago called The Forgotten God. And it's his entire book about the Holy Spirit because he was noticing that within congregations that he was a part of that no one ever talked about. It. And isn't that sad? Writing on the Holy Spirit is notoriously difficult but the gear, because the air is so foggy with strange concepts about the Spirit's person and work. Is the Spirit merely here to give good Christians great experiences? Well, what about holy laughter? Are people slain in the Spirit? What about speaking in tongues? Is the baptism of the Spirit a second blessing? The explosion of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movements this last century 
has developed a lot of interest in pneumatology, which is the theological discussion of the spirit, the word pneuma, pneumatology and the gifts of the spirit. Words associated with the Holy Spirit have come to be used in our Christian vocabularies. Whether we agree about their definitions is another issue. Ideas like speaking in tongues, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and new revelations are said to be gifts of the Spirit for His people. The gifts of the Holy Spirit have energized some Christian groups and horrified others. And, you know, we're kind of walking into that minefield here this morning um, as we discuss some of these issues because we're going to get into just a little few more of the uh, more, let's just say, controversial ones. As a preamble, I'd also like to remind us that the plan here is to survey all of the gifts in this part of this chart that we're going through. We're not going to get into all the details, into all the um, intensity of it, because we still have chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians to deal with. And that's when we'll come back to tongues and prophecy in specific, because Paul spends the entire chapter of chapter 14 talking about it. If we do all of our discussion today, we won't have anything to talk about when we get to that. Once we're done with this discussion, then I want to move into a a discussion within the group of the question between cessationism and continuationism. If you don't know what that means, just wait about 30 minutes and we'll talk about it. Then we will finish chapter 12. So we're, still, we're only halfway through the chapter. We've only been on this topic for a month and we're halfway through the chapter. Then we'll do chapter 13 in the context of the study of the gifts of the Spirit, not in the context of reading it during a marriage ceremony. 1 Corinthians 13, and then we'll go into 14. So that's kind of the plan, so they can really hit this in a, in a way that allows us to have at least a common, relatively common understanding of the various gifts of the Spirit. All right. <clears throat> On page two of our handout, we had finished last week going through apostleship, the pastoral shepherd, teaching, exhortation, evangelism, and then we began our discussion on giving, and I think we were all in agreement what that meant. Um, I had added the words in the definition beyond where I have written to share what you, have, what you have with sacrifice and generosity, and then I added a sentence beyond normal expectation. So that there's this idea of, you know, there are many people who can give, but there are those who have that spiritual gift, and there's a difference. Every time I, I, I run into these, these, the literature and even tangential uh, conversation and sermons on this, we have to remember that there's a difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit separate from the individual, specifically in areas of healing. If you want to say, well, the gifts of the Spirit, this gift of healing is, was gone, well, then are you saying that God cannot heal? Well, I hope not, because that's two different things. Do, does that make sense? So you have the gift of the Spirit, which is given to individual believers for the common good, for the, the growth of the church, and then you have the healing power of God. One is through the conduit of an individual, the other just simply happens. Last night, Lisa, I wish I'd brought my Bluetooth speaker because I would have played this for you as part of this preamble. But last night, Lisa uh, had heard on the radio a particular um, audio of a, of a situation. So I listened to it with her last night. And it's about 17 years old or so, 18 years old, of a man who, a preacher, who had gotten the flu. And the flu was such that it destroyed his vocal cords. 
they talked about the medical terms of some sort of sheath inside the larynx and it, and it destroyed it. So where I would be talking like this, he would be talking like this. And he lost his job. He couldn't preach. He couldn't teach. Everything that he had his whole life about him, he was unable to express that. And it was really devastating. Um, uh, he had to resign from his church. His wife became the, the, uh, the breadwinner of the family. He went through horrible depression. I think he said he had had 65 different treatment options and 200 doctors looking at this. And they all agreed, this is not curable. It's simply not curable. I mean, he had people pray over him. I mean, oh, the whole nine yards, nothing. Two years, three years. In this audio, he had finally agreed after a significant cajoling of people saying, well, we want you to teach a Bible study class. We want you to do it. And he's going, yeah, but you're, you guys can't listen to me for that long. It's annoying. I mean, I'm so talk like It's like you're choking. It's aggravating to listen to. But he's doing it. And So he's, you hear the audio, and he's preaching about and teaching about healing. And as he talks, his voice comes back. It is the most astounding four-minute video that you have ever heard. I got chills up and down my spine. And I, you just hear him it starts to come back and then suddenly he has his full voice and he stops and goes I, I, I don't know what to say and he starts to cry and he's trying to continue but he was healed without any special ceremony nothing going on God just goes Yeah, and he's reading it. scripture. He's it, not just lecturing. It's an amazing piece. If you Google it, you, 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 you Google Dwayne Miller. And voice voice. You can hear the YouTube audio. Anyway, I recommend that as something that's really quite extraordinary. If you don't think God can heal, because then they, when you find the blog, the articles about it, he went back to the doctors, and the doctors went, huh. That's weird. <laughs> You're completely normal. And there is no explanation. None at all. And he's now the pastor of a church. 20 years later, wrote a book about it. So I just want to bring that up to remind us that our discussions are about the gifts, gifts of the Spirit. And we cannot say that God can't do something seriously, for us to have the, the gall to say, oh, God can't do that, really? Hmm. Maybe he will prove you wrong, as he is wont to do. Anyway, so in our chart, our next one to look at is the gift of mercy. Now, I have this definition here. And you guys tell me if you agree, disagree, if you want to elaborate on it, or if you have examples of it. But is the unusual <coughs> gift of is the gift of unusual sensitivity towards those who are suffering to feel genuine sympathy and speak words of compassion. Now, what's odd about this gift is that wouldn't you think that everyone would have this? You would think, you know, I mean, a, a genuine sympathy and compassion for someone who's suffering, you would think. And yet, there are those who it's, it's not that they don't care, it's just there's not this draw to that person. Now, there are those who say that this is one of the um, uh, gifts that has expression in the medical community, especially nurses. 
Possibly. But is that a gift of the Spirit? And that's not necessarily within the church. This is where we have to make sure we don't break apart these kind of things and saying, well, is the gift of this Holy Spirit is a gift of mercy? Hmm. So I don't know. What, what, you, what, what would come to your mind if you think of this? Yeah. Would this, to distinguish this as a special gift, would this be distinguished as a life work of mercy as opposed to simply performing acts of mercy? In other words, I think like Mother Teresa, her life work was mercy as opposed to all of us, you know what I mean? And you could you say about that pastor, she, pastor teachers, their life work is pastor teachers. You could say her gift was, the, one of her gifts was the gift of mercy. Right. Uh, and it's uh, unusual. Yeah, and unusual as opposed to just simply, you know, we all have, you know, the we gifting of the Holy Spirit. And, and we do acts of mercy, but it's not our life work as someone called the pastor or someone called the to preach or someone called to teach or some you see what I mean? Is, I do. is, is that do. kind of the, the that difference may be, maybe? Does that is, is that distinction helpful? Does it make sense or do we even need to make those distinctions? I don't think you need to make the distinctions. Okay. If it's a gift, it could be a life or it could be just that family or that 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 person that has um, takes a young adopted baby and, and desires the best for him and his heart is breaking when he has to leave him in Texas. That's a gift of mercy. Yeah. You know, there's, and it's just, and it shows up in the way to, to reach out. It might not be a, and then obviously there's more situations in lives that that will show over and over again in different, different ways. But it's, you can see it. Cause we, even in our own church, you can tell there's that exceptional quality that's Oh wow, that was really kindness is the right word, amazing is the right word. It's just merciful, and it's something that us not quite gifted in that area, although we might, you know, because it's different to have empathy. It's different to be the person that reads a newspaper and can't get through it because you're just sobbing all the time. People sometimes mistake that for mercy. That's that's different. That's a whole different thing because that's not doing anything really. But your heart is broken. You can pray. But mercy is something deeper, quiet. It's interesting because in the scriptures, the gift of mercy is only in the Romans list. It's not in the Corinthian list. It's not in the Second Peter list. It's not in the Ephesians list. And you notice I have the verse C, Matthew 18, 33. That verse reads, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Same word. This is Jesus speaking, relating to the unforgiving servant. Uh, that story. Then you have Second Corinthians four one, where same word. God had mercy on us. That sympathy, that understanding, that love, and again, we our our language almost fails. Because mercy has a lot of synonyms that are other words that we use separately that kind of mean the same thing. Is anybody, could anybody uh, have an example in their life of someone that you would say that person had the spiritual gift of mercy? Anybody have a story like that? I have a friend that I thought did. She was quite a bit older than us. I think she was married the year I was born. <laughs> but um, she just seemed to know even when to call. Hmm. She would just call and not even know anything was going on. And um, she would go if she heard something was happening. Hmm. I remember somebody called me and asked me to come out to the hospital. And they were in there almost 90, and they were there before I was. Interesting. And didn't get the call, you know. So just seemed to have it. She's long gone now. but That's just, a great example. Yeah, and he would, you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. 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 Without was, telling him who I'm talking about. Yeah, there's that, there was something uh, really, truly, spiritually exceptional. And to use our definition, 
It's for the common good, for the good of the body of Christ. It was within that group of people she had some sense and was led by the Spirit to show mercy and show compassion. That's a great example. concept of forgiveness, I think of Wingo when it was brought up to him in the harvest that some of the uh, meanders through the neighborhood were stealing the product, pro- produce from the you know, harvest, the, the, all the production, and it was not what the intent was for, you know, they prayed for this tractor and they finally got it, and he said, it's God's. And if they come, then God is being gracious to them and giving it. So who am I? And it was just this unbelievable spirit. There's a forgiveness there automatically. Of, of, and as far as the church is concerned, it, sh- it showed the great love and compassion and merciful forgiveness of Christ to those who don't know it. It was just um, that kind of thing. The ability to really earnestly forgive and there's nothing that's just that little twinge inside. And be merciful, and to give the cloak, you know, the second shirt, or that that kind of thing. That, so he comes to mind. So let's move to the next one. I have serving as the one written in the column. You actually have serving and helps, or helping, is in one of the other lists, and so most people connect them together. Um, as the same thing. I have it defined as a gift to step into action and meet the needs of the church, often behind the scenes. The key here is that the word serving, if you see over in the right-hand column, it's the Greek word diakonia, or deacon. So that gives you a sense of why we're called deacons, because the deacons are those that have been identified as servants within the church to help in various forms or fashion. Um, In Acts 6, 1 through 6, we have an example. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned a full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, who was later martyr, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Armaeus, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. That is the idea of the diakonia. They were then tasked to help the widows in the congregation to relieve Peter and the other disciples from doing that same work. Not that they couldn't but that they should they be doing that when others would have that opportunity and the ability to do so. Um, It's interesting that the Corinthian list, which has the word helping, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30. The Greek word there for helps is the only time in the New Testament that word is used. Hooray. Whenever that happens, you go, well, then how do we know how to translate it? Well, because the Greek word construction comes from a root word meaning to help. And we find that over in Acts 20, verse 35, where it says to help the weak. And that same word help, expanded in its you know, Greek construction, is found over in 1 Corinthians. So the idea of helping the weak serving the church gets this concept of what this means in that um, you know whatever form or fashion this takes doesn't necessarily mean you have to you can only be a deacon it just means if you have the gift of service and there are many in our church that do i mean 
we wouldn't eat as a gathering if there weren't people who had this gift and this desire and this ability to help in this way. There's a lot of those in this room. And that is a gift. It's a spiritual gift. The next one, leadership and administration. What did I read a lot of variations on this one? Um, one thing to remember is that we have the early church. The early church is made up of brand new believers. So imagine a congregation. Everybody in this room has only been a Christian for six months. So how do we know what's right? How do we know the right way to do things and to not fall into error if some weird person walks into the room and begins spouting off heresy? How do you handle those kind of things? How do you organize? And those are spiritual gifts. I have here the definition, the God-given ability to give direction and to motivate others to accomplish goals. It's interesting, in the Romans list, Romans 12, 8, it says to lead with zeal. <clears throat> There's lots of different kind of leadership uh, styles. There are some very quiet, and there are some that they're 25 yards ahead of everybody else on the, in the parade. They're just pulling everybody on by the force of their personality. Um, sometimes that's a gift, sometimes it's just annoying. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, you know what it's like. Either you've been in business, and I'm, I'm gonna step away from the discussion about the church itself, but you've been in situations where everyone's kind of on the same plane and then someone walks in the room and it's like everyone now listens to them. They have something in them that they just take charge. And everyone in the room is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, great. They're able to create a consensus. They're able to create some sort of unified saying, let's get this done. Because um, it's Super Bowl Sunday, uh, but you think of a head coach. A head coach has an awful lot of other assistant coaches. But when the head coach talks, everyone listens. And you have some of them that are no good at it. And they don't last long. But then you have others, when you, if, you, if you're a football fan, you can name them. But whenever they commanded, the whole room, the, the whole organization would follow their lead. So let's go back into the church. Now there's a danger in following merely because the personality is strong. It's a big danger. I can think of a couple examples and I won't name them because that would be unfair to them because it's just my opinion. But I know of a couple megachurch um, pastors that the church they left to come to the new one, the church they left is basically dead. Nobody goes there. But when they were there, it was big and thriving. That leader left and the church collapsed. That's, there's a problem there. That means everyone was there because of him, not because of Jesus. Big problem. Many, many years ago, oh, how long ago was it? When we were at Trinity Bible Church, uh, we, was in, we were in college. And the senior pastor there at the time was Joel Eisenes. And he took a one-year sabbatical. The church sent him you know, off and he went to England. When he came back, to lead the church, he admitted to the church that when he left, he spent a lot of time while in England deciding whether or not to return to the church because it had grown so much under his leadership. And he put, to use the spiritual, the Bible words, he put a fleece out before God. He says, if while I'm away, 
if the church grows, then I'll come back. If the church does not grow, then I do not need to go back there. Because that means it only grew because of me. And that something's wrong with me, something's wrong with my you know, management style, something's wrong with how I, I run this operation. Well, the church grew. And he came back and uh, led the church for uh, another 15, 20 years. So there is this danger of following the cult of personality. And we have to be very careful of that as Christians. Are you choosing where you plant yourself because of the personality in the, on the stage? Or are you planted there because God has led you there to serve and be part of it? Yeah. One thing I've noticed uh, in the various churches I've been to is that uh, Americans at least tend to promote people into positions of leadership and administration in the church because they are gifted in worldly administration and leadership. And I've seen some real bonehead moves on their parts from a spiritual perspective that in retrospect shows that they were not the least bit spiritually gifted in that area. Right. But everybody followed them in their path because they had these other gifts and they had a lot of notoriety, a lot of uh, prestige in the business world, etc. And uh, I think that's a, a big danger that, we, that I've seen over and over again in our society and Christian churches. And I would have to agree. There are many times where, you know, someone is successful out here. But in the church, does, does that same ability, is the ability a gift of the Spirit, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. And that's a good point. Anyway, just, just something to explore here. All right, with trembling, I'm going to turn the page. Because now we get to the most controversial of the gifts. And remember, we're not going to dig too deep into this, but we are going to discuss it. I mean, it's important that we discuss this. Um, but we will get into even more detail when we get to chapter 14. First is prophecy. Now. The first thing to note is that two of the lists have the word prophecy and two of the spiritual gift lists have the word prophet. So you have the action and the title. Now, I'm not going to make too big a deal about that, but we have to have that in mind. Is there an office of prophet or a a, a title that you can give to someone as prophet and then is the definition of prophecy itself oh my I mean Wayne Grudem has a rather three, thick 300 page book about the gifts of prophecy um, and what that means and how it has been expressed and understood throughout church history it's amazing um, I have some definitions here and you can help me fix them or uh, think that this is good enough <clears throat> to be gifted with a message of something that God reveals to the speaker that he God wants to deliver to his people <clears throat> but it is not a new revelation that supplants scripture so that would eliminate Joseph Smith you mentioned last week that in the Mormon church they have the apostles and the prophets because they saw Joseph Smith as a prophet who had a vision and then they spoke it out and then they built an entire doctrine around that. It supplants scripture. That's not what this means. And then secondly, I have, it could be a warning. It can be an exhortation or a revelation under the direction of the Holy Spirit. I have a quote here from A.W. Tozer that I just thought was Interesting. So here's Tozer, who is this extraordinary man of God, extraordinary preacher, teacher, you know, loved and beloved around the world. He has this prayer, Lord Jesus, I come to thee for spiritual preparation. Lay thy hand upon me, anoint me with the oil, and get his phrase, of the New Testament prophet. Forbid that I should become a religious scribe and thus lose my prophetic calling. 
Save me from the curse that lies dark across the modern clergy, the curse of compromise, of imitation, of professionalism. Lay thy terror upon me, O God, and drive me to the place of prayer where I may wrestle with principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. You have a warning in Matthew 7:15 in Jesus' words, beware of false prophets. Over in my fourth column, you have the second section that prophecy or prophets should be rigorously evaluated and tested by scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, it reads, do not despise prophets. Hmm, so what is a prophet? Well, you have to also understand that in our English language, it can have two meanings. It can mean foretelling, in other words, predicting the future or prophesying about the future. We have prophets in the Old Testament that did that. But you also have forthtelling, those who simply speak God's word to us. Now, as I also have in my fourth column, some define this as a gift that a pastor uses when they're delivering a sermon. Sorry, third column. Fourth column. One, two, three, four. Sorry. <laughs> it's early. <laughs> um, but the pa- that, a, that a pastor is a prophet. Well, if that were the case, then won't come Paul never described himself as what? He describes himself as a preacher and a teacher in 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11, but he doesn't use the word for prophet. He uses the word kirax, which means herald. Different idea of someone who's just speaking out. Whereas the prophet, the gift of prophecy, seems to be different even in Paul's mind. Now, where this gets kind of weird for some of us and where we end up uh, getting confused because you can have someone who starts talking to you and says I have a, I have a word from the Lord for you oh so is that prophecy Is that, and that's where most people who would say something like that would apply it. And remember, it's a gift of the Spirit to be able to hear from God a message that they may not even fully understand. And they just feel, I, I have been, I've been led to give this to you. Now, in my profession, as an editor literary agent, I go to a lot of writers' conferences and I have a wide variety of the Christian world can come and sit across from me and pitch me their book ideas. On more than one occasion, I have had someone sit down and they say, and they say, before I show you anything, I have a word from the Lord for you. How are you supposed to respond to that? I say, well, sure. You know, what do you, you know, it's like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> that wouldn't be good either. And so they say something, and I'm listening to them, and I'm going, I don't know what you mean. It's usually some sort of a blessing or some sort of, um, you know, encouragement. And then they go, and all you can say is thank you. And then you move on to the business at hand. You may have experienced this. So is this, what is the gift of prophecy? And how do we define that? Because of this usage within the body, and I'm not saying it's wrong, please don't hear me say that. But there are those who would say that this particular gift of the Spirit ended in the first century. That's a, that'll be a later discussion here. But any thoughts on this? Or have you run into it? 
Yeah. I have a relative who was told when she was 29 that she should marry, that God had told this woman that, that my cousin should marry this man. And uh, it ended up being an extremely difficult marriage. He's passed on now. Um, and he, it, you know, you could look at it in different ways, like, wow, because they had four children, huh. and they all suffered deeply. So it's like, so with that, you know, it's like, but anyway. See, then you, you kind of wonder, well, was that that person's opinion? And then they, they wrapped it into the guise of a spiritual statement. Or are those, and you, some of you may know people who have that gift, Jesus says is to beware of false prophets and then first Thessalonians don't despise them but test them mm -hmm. because it means they're out there and will always be out there that's why one writer actually I found out late last night he he actually wrote and said of all of the gifts of the Spirit he says I think the most important one is if you have anyone within your congregation that has the ability to discern mm. the spirits. And if it's a true gift, listen. Because of what we're talking about. Someone could just be, it could be off, but here you have someone who, who is basically trying to get people out of the church to follow her, and they have to meet in hotel rooms. And then, the, I mean, just all of that is just all the red flags. My friends, this is why when we study this, it, the tendency is then to say, well, it's none of it's real. And we shut it down. Rather than to say, well, let's weigh it. What does it look like? How does it work? There is an interesting um, uh, statement from... It's actually J.I. Packer writing about John Owens. John Owens was an incredible writer and Puritan in the 17th century of England. Actually, Packer writes, 17th century England did not, to my knowledge, produce anyone who claimed the gift of tongues. <laughs> it just wasn't talked about. It just didn't happen. No one talked about it. 
But he said, you know, of all the Puritans, while the Spirit of God is, in, in, is infused in all of their writing, there were very few that actually addressed the topic of the Holy Spirit, and John Owen was one of the few. His book on that is about 800 pages of dense Puritan text. I dare you. <laughs> I mean, I look at that and I'm going, okay, I don't have enough time in my life to try to weigh through that. But <coughs> other people did, like J.A. Packer. And he pulled from this, this statement, to be more interested in extraordinary gifts of lesser worth than in ordinary ones of greater value to be more absorbed in seeking one's own spiritual enrichment, like going to a prophecy meeting to learn how to be a prophet, than in seeking the edifying of the church, and to have one's attention centered on the Holy Spirit, whereas the Spirit himself is concerned to center our attention on Jesus. Those traits are signs of enthusiasm whenever they are found, even in those whom seem saintly. In other words, we have to be really careful with this. Since no one can ever conclusively prove that any charismatic manifestation is identical with what is claimed in the New Testament counterpart, one can never in any particular case have more than a tentative and provisional opinion and must be open to constant reconsideration as time and life go on. Isn't that interesting? So as that preamble, we'll talk about tongues, very briefly. Um, tongues. Don't forget that in the Corinthian church, many of the believers have come from pagan uh, ritual where one of the signs of them, their leader or whatever, was when they would break out into tongues, into unintelligible words. And so that's one thing that they were bringing into the church with them, is that understanding. So never forget that. Secondly, <clears throat> and I don't have the answers here, I mean, it's the Greek word here is the word glossa, and this is why you hear the phrase glossolalia is the study of tongues. But are they physical languages, meaning Spanish, French, English, German, whatever, or are they spirit languages? which do not have a uh, conversational counterpart. Because 1 Corinthians 14 does have the phrase from Paul, for I pray in an unknown tongue. Does that mean it's an unknown meaning a spirit language or an unknown tongue is that he didn't know it, but he speaks in it. And then you have Pentecost where everyone, the languages of the world were being spoken, but they were being understood by others in that same confines. So what is it? Which is it? Um, and also you can't forget that there's a second, there's a counterpart to all of the usage of the tongues in the body of the church is the interpretation of it. So if I were to say suddenly something like tu n'es pas intelligent, what did I just say? You're not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> See, I just said you're not very smart in French, but we had it, in, we had it interpreted. <laughs> so I just spoke in tongues. I practiced that so long so I could say it right. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> or you could say, Ich bin nicht schlau which in German means I'm not very smart. You could, you, you know, there's the problem with tongues in its expression and its usage. I mean, there, there, there are examples of the, let's just call it the, for lack of a better, uh, better term here, the hyper-charismatic, and I, for however we want to define that, but there are stories of a, uh, a professor who went in to a place where tongues were being practiced regularly as part of the worship service. And he stood up 
And he expressed. And someone else stood up in the room and interpreted it. And he goes, well, that's interesting because I just quoted Psalm 150 in Hebrew. And that isn't what you said I said. But he had gone in, obviously, with the spirit of contention. And it wasn't really the right thing to do and the right way of doing it. But he was trying to make a point to that congregation that what they were doing wasn't necessarily the biblical expression of it. Some define, some also bring in the idea of a, the private language of prayer. You can find that in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 2, maybe. Um, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So the idea of being able to speak in a prayer language to God for personal development, that's practiced as well. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. Last week I asked Pastor Jim um, after the service, I said, I'm, I'm going to throw this out to the class next week, and I'm just curious. He says, what would happen if someone suddenly stood up in the middle of our congregation during the service and began um, uh, uh, speaking very loudly in a unknown tongue? And he just blinked and he said, and then I said, and then if someone else stood up and interpreted it, he says, well, one thing, it would be very disruptive and not really part of the edification of the body because no one would know what was going on or why. And then he says, we would have to discern that very carefully. He didn't say we're going to get security and shut the person down. But to go back to your friend and that situation where they say, oh, there's a oppressive spirit. Well, no, it's not. It's, if the gifts of the spirit are going to be expressed, they'll be expressed. But the regulative uh, nature of 1 Corinthians 14 is that it is for the edification of the body, not for that one person to feel special. We have to be very careful when we run into this. And notice in the interpretations, that is to translate the message of someone who's speaking in an unknown tongue, it's the Greek word hermeneia where we get our word hermeneutics, which is interpreting the scriptures. The study of hermeneutics is actually a seminary class. So the idea of interpreting what is being heard so that it can be understood, that is definitely a gift. But if, if, if Tom had not been here, I would not have done my little joke with the French language because I wouldn't have known if there was anyone else in the room who could have understood it and interpreted it. Then it would have been something that meant nothing to anyone in the room. As it was, I was trying to illustrate how you have tongues and then interpretation and it worked. If you weren't here, I would have gone, I'll save it for next week. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> But you, you see some of the challenges we have here? Now, well, I have, there's no way we're going to be able to get to the rest of my discussion that I have spent all evening prepared. Um, I'm just going to hand it out. I'll try to bring it back with you next week. Um, is the discussion between are the spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, for today, or did they end in the first century? And that is a raging debate throughout the evangelical church. We have the cessationist argument in Tom Schreiner's new book, really good book. We have the continuationist argument in Andrew Wilson's new book. And he talks about an invitation to eucharismatic worship. 
Eucharist, in other words, the idea of thankfulness and bringing liturgy and charismatic into one. And then you have the Sam Storms, who is a continuationist, but also a very reformed Calvinist. Then you have this book. Are the miraculous gifts for today? Four views. All four major views of this issue are laid out. The first guy steps up, writes 25 pages or so, and then position number two, position number three, and position number four respond to guy number one. <coughs> Second section, guy number two steps up to the dock, makes his case, and the other three respond. And they do that over over here, and this is edited by Wayne Grudem, who is a local um, teacher. What I've done is I took this book and created a chart for you. <laughs> so that you can see the 2, 4, 6, 8, and 11 different views that show up in this particular book and why it is so crazy and confusing. Uh, so you won't be able to discuss this at length um, today. And yeah, this was a lot of work. Um, and next week I'll also maybe bring you a separate um, resource sheet so you can, if you want to dig into this topic, you can find an extraordinary amount of literature um, uh, available. In fact, I brought some articles here just to express it for you. For example, Gospel Coalition did a, um, a, let's just call it a debate if you like, but you have the Gospel Coalition blog, Why I Am a Cessationist by Tom Schreiner. Then you have, the next week was, Why I Am a Continuationist by Sam Storms. And you have them having this wonderful, brilliant dialogue about this topic as Christian brothers and sisters should. Because they all say this has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Christian. It's just how you understand how you think the Spirit works in today. And then there was a third one and the Gospel Coalition, but it's their uh, journal, scholarly journal called Themelios by this guy. And it's called The Continuation of the Charismata. And he goes into the Greek and the debates and everything. And we can touch on some of that next week because I, I think it, for one thing, you're not going to ever hear this from the sermon in the pulpit. Where else are we going to discuss these? In a place where it's safe to explore ideas because I know you all come from different backgrounds and have different understandings of this and you might even hear some of this for the first time and that's good because these are important things to understand because they do uh, serve uh, to understand if you see the fourth, the fourth section across the top you have the cessationist on one end you have the Pentecostal or the total continuationist on the other end. But there are two middle positions. And at the very bottom of the chart are scholars or well-known people who uphold those four different things. And so that means you have R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, and Gordon Fee all disagreeing with each other. <laughs> We're talking some of the most extraordinary scholars of the day who simply when they come down to this they go you know I think of it this way the other guy goes well I think of it that way and went okay good and they can move on because this isn't an area to separate them it's an area of good discussion um, but you'll notice the two middle ones are open but cautious which is where I think a lot of people live and then there's the third wave, which needs definition, if you've never heard that phrase. It comes out of the, the vineyard movement. John Wimber, 
which focuses more on healing through um, laying on of hands and that type of thing. An entire movement came out of it and they called it the third wave. So, anyway, yeah, there was no way we were going to do that in four and a half minutes. So, we just, this is our introduction for our next week's discussion as best we can. Um, and bring your questions for discussion for the group. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time to have the opportunity to just look deeply at this wonderful thing that you've done for us. The gift of the Spirit. And what is a gift? A gift is something we didn't earn, something we didn't ask for, something that was just given to us. And to see how you have expressed these gifts in each of our lives, and in the lives of the people around us, and how they do work for the greater common good of the church, for your body in our world that does not understand this at all and doesn't understand why we believe as we believe. So let's go into our time of worship and uh, meditate on this throughout the rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.